0: this is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded presentations by former U.S. intelligence officers and national security officials who have great stories to tell. Today, to help me co-host the program, I'm inviting back Mr. John Sano, the vice president of AFIO. John is a retired clandestine services officer, a former chief of CIA's East Asia Division and an ADDO, and he now teaches at the Institute of World Politics. John, Welcome back to AFIO Now. Thank you, Jim. Uh, It's a real pleasure today. I mean, we have, and I I apologize, Victor in advance. We have the country's leading expert on Korea, North Korea, especially, but Asia in general as well. So without spending too much time on his his bio, which would take up a a considerable amount of our allotted time. Dr. Cha is currently the Vice Dean for Faculty and Graduate Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He's also a Senior Advisor for Asia, as well as the Korea Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, DC. From 2004 to 2007, Dr. Charles served as the Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. He was also the Deputy Head of the US Delegation to the Six-Party Talks in Beijing. He's received numerous awards for his government service to include two outstanding service commendations while at the NSC. He's the author of many books, including The Impossible State, North Korea, Past and Future, which was selected by Foreign Affairs Journal as, quote, best book on the Asia-Pacific in 2012. His latest book is Power Play, Origins of the American Alliance System in Asia. He is a frequent contributor for NBC and MSNBC and a guest analyst for CNN, ABC, CBS, Wall Street Journal, and the the list goes on. His op-eds have appeared in The Washington Post, The New York Times, Foreign Policy Magazine, and the Financial Times, again, among many others. Dr. Cha holds a BA, an MIA, and a PhD from my alma mater, Columbia University, as well as an MA from Oxford University. He is fluent in both English and British. So without <laughs> further ado, uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Victor Cha. Dr. Cha, over to you. Thanks, uh,
1: thanks John. Thanks for the very kind introduction. It's really good to be with you and Jim. I'm looking forward to our discussion about uh, all things Korea and all things Asia. And um, uh, I'd be happy to just have a conversation about it. So um, ask me whatever you'd like, John. I'd be happy to to take it from there.
0: Okay. Well, with the new administration coming in and President Trump leaving, presumably, uh, the high profile summits that he had with Kim Jong-un, while it made for fascinating television, uh, it resulted in actually no, no progress. Uh, so the, my first question is, did the notoriety, the worldwide notoriety that Kim Jong-un got, did, did that embolden him to advance his weapons program? In other words, did, did, he, did this give him a sense that the U.S. could be under the Trump administration more easily manipulated?
1: Well, I I certainly would agree that um, these this high profile summit diplomacy gave the North Korean leader the world stage, a world stage that he had not had before. Uh, And I would also agree that it um, as much effort as President Trump put into this summit diplomacy, it didn't achieve much if the goal of this was to um, reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the country. Um, um, that has not happened. The program has grown over the last four years uh, and the testing has not stopped even though uh, some aspects of the testing may have slowed down. Uh, they have done, I think, 30 ballistic missile tests since the last summit in Hanoi where the two leaders met in Vietnam. Um, and uh, we have seen no cessation of the program uh, whatsoever. Like I said, if anything, it has grown. What this, what the summit... Um, uh did do was it gave us um more of a view into the north korean leadership and how they operate. Um and I think we learned a few things from that. We learned that uh Kim Jong-un looks like he's pretty much in control of the uh, of the place. And and that was not necessarily a foregone conclusion when he first took power. Um, I think we also learned that the uh, North Korean leader really worries about some of the sanctions that are on the country right now, because that was the main thing that he asked for. But in terms of giving him the world stage, um, you know, it—it it, <clears throat> this is something that the United States has not offered North Korea before. Right. Uh, a meeting with the president of the United States in front of the entire world. That was supposed to be the meeting that would take place with the handshake that would seal the denuclearization deal. And um, and so in a sense, that was a big car that was played that gave North Korea, the North Korean leader a lot of publicity, a lot of legitimacy uh, on the world stage. Because remember, it was not just the meeting with Trump. I mean, there were three meetings with Trump. But prior to that first meeting with Trump, the Chinese leader would not meet with the North Korean leader. Right? The Chinese president, Xi, would not meet with the North Korean leader, but as soon as Trump announced he was going to do it, uh, you know he Kim got meetings with the Chinese, he got meetings with the Singaporeans, he got meetings with the Vietnamese, and of course with South Korea as well. So, um, uh, so the North Korean leader got a lot out of that, a lot of out of that interaction over the last four years.
0: Thank you. Uh, in your article, and I would encourage I would encourage our, our listeners, our members, to uh, to read it. It's a uh, entitled Engaging North Korea Anew, uh, the foreign affairs uh, journal. Uh, the date is November 17, so very recently. Uh, in that article, <clears throat> you stated that um, denuclearization is not a near-term possibility with North Korea. Can you expand on what possible, uh, what a near-term possibility might look like?
1: So near-term, when I say it's not a near-term possibility, saying that, um, that I, at least in my view, there isn't A Libya model for North Korea. Uh, The notion that there could be one iteration of diplomacy where North Korea would agree to give up everything, and then they crate it all up and put it on a dock that could then be taken to a national lab somewhere in the United States. The the program is just too far along. It's too far advanced. Um, Libya wasn't even fully a program yet, Um, but this is too far along and too far advanced. So some sort of near term denuclearization is not possible. And the reason to state that is to um, to create an understanding that this will take time. And it will take a really well thought out strategy, not just, you know, a a flyover summit um, and a couple of nice words and then a handshake and everything will be done. This will be hard. It'll be it'll have to be ground out with experts. Um, just because of the size of the program and the proven desires by the North Korean leader leadership not to give up these weapons. So, you know, that's essentially what I meant by, uh, by um, no the, the unlikelihood of a near-term possibility for denuclearization.
0: And also, as you pointed out, uh, previous administrations, we've used a variety of strategies, carrot and stick, um, uh, benign neglect. Um, so How do you see uh, a new administration adopting uh, a a new strategy in terms of dealing with North Korea to to realize, you know, realistic results, to have a practical solution to it?
1: Um, So I think it's a great question, John. And I think, you know, the first thing is, you know, every administration will have to do a policy review. They'll have to do a bottom-up policy review of what they've inherited, uh, what's been tried in the past, and what they should think about for the future. Um, The other piece of this is that we know there is a a demonstrated tendency by North Korea to uh, greet new administrations that come into the White House in the United States with some sort of missile event um, or nuclear event. Um, They did it with the Trump administration. Some of your listeners will remember that famous meeting in Mar-a-Lago in the evening with uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan and President Trump when North Grid did um, did a missile test. Uh, they did it to President Obama as well, um, I think within three months of his taking office, a long-range rocket shot, and then within five months they did a nuclear test. So, um, And the point of mentioning those two things is that one of them will influence the other. So if If there is a policy review going on and North Korea behaves as it, as it has done in the past and does some sort of testing, that's naturally going to influence the shape of the policy review, probably in a direction that focuses much more on sanctions than anything else and so then the real problem is how you move forward from two steps back if you will if you start two steps back how do you how do you move forward? And if we're in that situation, it will take time. I mean, to be frank, it'll take, you know, almost a year probably before um, we can get back to negotiations if we go through another cycle of provocations. Um, But then I think the key going forward from the U.S. side is, um, to quote uh, Defense Secretary Bill Perry from a long time ago, is um, for the policy uh, folks to understand that, you know, we've got to deal with the situation as it is and not as we wish it to be, which is." You know, a pretty far along nuclear weapons program where near-term denuclearization is not possible. So we need to focus on practical things like capping the program and easing it so it doesn't grow anymore, uh, and then focusing on ways of reducing the threat as interim steps towards the ultimate goal of denuclearization. And on the North Korean side, I think there has to there has to be a rea- rea- realization that. <clears throat> Um, that continuing down this path is going to make it very difficult for the North Korean people and the North Korean economy and the North Korean leadership, because I think there's, um, uh, there's a limit to how much um, pain they can take from international sanctions. They are under, under arguably the severest sanctions ever right now that are self-imposed because of the fear of COVID inside the country. They basically shut off the border from all, from all international trade. So um, so I think with, if that's the basis, and it's not a very pretty basis to start from, you know, there, there might be the possibility for moving forward in terms of the negotiation.
0: One of the things that you also mentioned was, um, and this freeze or cap, um, one of the biggest obstacles has been North Korea's refusal, in essence, to, uh, to provide a, ro- a verifiable inventory of their nuclear weapons and their missiles. Um, Do you think that's because the numbers might surprise us and that we may make reduction part of the uh, negotiating um, position on the U.S. part? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the North Koreans
1: are are worried very much about um, um, verification, uh, that level of intrusion. Sure, I think it's partly because there's um, probably capabilities that they're hiding um that they you know clearly only want to make available to the public um the old facility at Junggen, the plutonium-based reactor and some of the ancillary facilities. Um but um the declaration has always been the sticking point in the in the in the past agreements because you know it's an opaque regime and it doesn't really want to show the world what it what it has. Um, and and that would mean access not just to Jungen but all over you know, all over the country as we've been profiling in our in our on our CSIS research. The, there are you know three belts of missile bases arrayed going up the peninsula. I mean, many of your listeners already know, know these sorts of things based on their work inside the government. But, you know, based on open source uh, satellite imagery, we can see a lot of these facilities. And, you know, they've never been part of any inspection regime, any declaration, anything of that nature. And yet these are relevant delivery capabilities for WMD. To uh, hurt our, you know, allies as well as the United States. So, so I think, yeah, the the, the declaration has always been hard for them to give because it means revealing, um, you know, all of what they have, and then subject subjecting it to verification from outside um, authorities, which they don't want. All these people crawling around North Korea, looking at everything that they have.
0: And you mentioned, you know, again, back to the uh, to the freeze. Um, would that be a if they were to accept that? Would that be a period of confidence building on both sides?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the freeze would be an important place, at least for both sides to start, because you know there really isn't another place to start. I mean, we you have to start at step one, which is you know it might be it might be um, trying to freeze the operations at the Yongbyon reactor. Uh, freeze whatever things they're doing around the Young Gun reactor that um, uh, might be part of uh, the other program that they're that they're building that. But, um, um, you know, this is for one. You're with because we've done this part of the negotiation before, you know, it would be criticized politically as being buying about buying the same horse yet again. We've heard that phrase before. But, you know, it's it's a necessary part of the process. You, you, you've got to be able to at least work on stopping it. And, yes, there would be um, probably some relaxation of sanctions in return for uh, the freeze that takes place, and that might build some confidence. But one of the things that we've learned from the past negotiations is that in and of itself does not build enough confidence between the two sides, right? They both are still highly distrustful of each other, in the so-called freeze-for-freeze freeze phase of the negotiation. And, you know, whether it was, I don't know how many years, what, six years under the agreed frameworks implementation, or two to three years under the six-party talks um, 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 joint statement implementation, you know, those were both freeze-for-freeze freeze deals that provided things to North Korea in return for um, allowing um, a, 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 a uh, a stopping and then monitoring of the program, but it it didn't create trust between the two sides. And so that's why there needs to be something more beyond that, um, that we have to think about uh, beyond the freeze for freeze, this initial freeze for freeze step.
0: So I would guess then that if North Korea were to offer a counter proposal of, okay, we'll freeze, but then we get to keep what we have, would that be acceptable? In other words, they are... I mean, they view themselves obviously as a de facto nuclear state. Would that, if they were to propose such uh, a recommendation, we'll take the freeze, we won't produce any more missiles, we won't do any more nuclear testing, and we won't sell our nuclear weapons, uh, and maybe even rejoin the NPT and, and join the uh, MTCR. Would that? You think that would be an acceptable alternative?
1: I mean, that I would I would characterize that as a good um, a a new, a good, a new, and a positive interim step to denuclearization. I mean, it would be a good, it would be, those would be great accomplishments. If we could accomplish those things that you just described, those would be new and those would be important steps in terms of reducing the threat, Um, but they would be interim steps towards denuclearization. So the premise that they could then keep what they have would be the thing that would be most, I think, what would be most, most contested. By uh, by the United States, South Korea, Japan, um, perhaps China. I'm not really sure, or Russia, but certainly by the United States, Japan, and, and South Korea. And so, <clears throat> I think that is um, that will be the that would obviously be the hardest part of the negotiation because the North Korean regime, the leadership, has already agreed to a definition of denuclearization, which was made in 2005, which was. To, and it's in, in, in Section 1 of this September 2005 Joint Statement, Clause 3 or 4, which is that North Korea would agree to abandon all nuclear weapons and existing nuclear programs. So that's the definition of denuclearization. Um, even though the North tried to renegotiate that definition under Trump, they never agreed on one. So as far as I'm concerned, the last one that they agreed on is still the standing definition. Um, and so that would have to be the terms of a discussion that... All those other things could be on the table, but um, the notion that they could keep their capabilities, I think, would not fit with the definition of denuclearization that both sides had agreed to.
0: That's an excellent point. Uh, In your article, you you called for a, quote, fundamental transformation of the political relationship between the United States and North Korea. What do you think that would look like?
1: Um, so th- the point of that was to say that after we have after we achieve a freeze, the so-called freeze for freeze, um, a stage that at least tries to cement the status quo, um, the choice then at that point is to either try to get another verifiable declaration. Which, you know, I think would fail because it failed the last two times we tried to do it or to try to do something different. And so. My suggestion was that we try at that point to move to a political track and try to focus on improving transforming the political relationship between the between North Korea and its neighbors as a way to try to build um, a better foundation for uh you know these harder denuclearization steps that come down the road um, you know I think one of the things about the past demands of u s policy in North Korea was that I don't think it ever really acknowledged how difficult denuclearization is. I mean, it's a difficult, as you said, you know, it's a difficult choice for North Korea to make. And so, um, so trying to at least stop the, at least freeze the the situation now and work on a political discussion to transform the relationship and to try to uh, build the foundation for these harder steps would be important now. What would that look like? You know, I think you know one element would be. Looking at some sort of acknowledgment on both sides with regard to um, an end to the state of war on the Korean Peninsula. You know, I don't think anybody wants a war on the Korean Peninsula. I think uh, the cost of war would be tremendous for all sides. Um, um, you know, one could start a nuclear war to to try to prevent a nuclear war, but you know, would that really be worth the candle? It's not. It's not entirely clear. Um, <clears throat> And so that might be one place uh, uh, um, to start. But then the other would be to try to really uh, create the basis of a a normal political relationship between Washington and Pyongyang. And, you know, I'm not saying that that would be easy. There are many elements to that, um, including some very difficult ones like uh, the human rights situation in North Korea. It would be very difficult for any U.S. administration to fully normalize political relations with a regime that treats its people as badly as it does in in North Korea. So I'm not saying that this is going to be easy. It would be an easy step. But if if again, the goal is long, you know, real and true long term denuclearization, um, we have to create the political basis for those very hard denuclear state and denuclearization steps coming going forward. And, And that requires the two sides to cooperate on the verification declaration, not be trying to fight each other on a verification declaration. And so, and, and so there, there needs to be that element of a political relationship going, going forward. I mean, denuclearization is extremely complicated and it, it, it requires many different pieces and not all of them are simply um, things that happen between technical experts, right? Um, uh, it requires a much bigger and broader uh, foundation for the relationship.
0: So you don't foresee a bromance developing between President Biden and uh, Kim Jong-un?
1: As, as affable a man as uh, pres- uh, President-elect Joe Biden is, and, uh, a- and his willingness to be friends with just about anybody, <laughs> um, I think that he's going to be cautious about that particular element of it. That's not to say that he would completely rule it out, because I don't think he would rule it out. Uh, but um, it would have to be you know, after some real steps have been made in ter- and unprecedented steps have been made by experts on um, elements of this, denuclear- uh, this denuclearization path going forward. Um, you know, and then we might see, you know, the possibility of some interaction between them. But I, I, I really doubt that they will do it, you know, the way that uh, the Trump administration did, was, which was to lead with sort of the summit and hope that that would then trickle down and create a mandate on both sides for, for and, you know, The one thing we learned from the uh, Trump strategy, and, and we should be thankful for it, uh, one thing that we did learn for those of us, you know, as you and I have looked at this for so long, is that that sort of summit diplomacy did then trickle down, um, um, a, a, which many thought would be the key to unlock the problem on North Korea, you know, proved not, not to work. Right? And so, um, so that's something that we have learned from the four years of Trump uh, summit and bromance diplomacy.
0: Good point. Um, let me switch gears slightly. There was a lot of talk about Kim Jong-un's health earlier this year. Uh, speculation as to what would happen if he were to prematurely die. Uh, his younger sister, Kim Yo-jong, uh, is she a contender to replace him? Um I mean I think she is. Um you,
1: you know there's there's uh there's a lot of speculation about Kim and his health. Uh P, you know, people didn't know if he was having heart problems, uh whether he was avoiding COVID. That's why he was trying to stay out of um out of uh sight. Um <clears throat> but you know, I think in North Korea um the most important thing that matters in terms of the leadership is the two things. One is a direct tie, family tie to the leader. And um, and secondly, that the leader likes you because there are family members that the leader doesn't like. right? And we've seen what's happened to some of those family members. They've been executed and they've been exiled and things of that nature. So, so um, and in that sense, she is the one, right? She is clearly, um, um, you, you know, directly related, obviously, directly, direct bloodline, Pekdu, Mount Pekdu bloodline, as they say in North Korea. Um, and, um, and he clearly likes her. He clearly trusts her because of the role she plays. Um, when I try to explain this to uh, people who aren't as well versed as your listeners on North Korea, um, I, 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 and I do this with my students, I show them the image of um, when uh, the South Korean president went to North Korea and um, the red carpet uh, receiving line that he got at the airport when he went to North Korea. And as you can imagine, these things, even in democracies, are very well choreographed. There's you know, not a hair is out of place, not nothing, you know, every step is choreographed. And as you can imagine, in a militaristic society like North Korea, that's even more the case, right? So everything is tied to perfection. And if you step outside of that, you know, there could be real consequences to play. But in this very sort of structured, militaristic North Korean ceremony, there was only one individual that was able to move wherever that individual wanted to go, Um, you know, walk across the red carpet, walk up to the platform, tell the South Korean president where to stand, these sorts of things. There's only one person that could do that. And that was Kim Yo-jong, the sister. She was the only one that had carte blanche to do whatever she wanted. And so that I think to me was a symbol of how much he trusts her. Um, And so, you know, if something were to happen to the North Korean leader, It wouldn't surprise me at all if she was considered the next in line uh, because she is um, of the same bloodline and this North Korean leadership is all about the family. And even if though she is a younger woman, um, which is not what we'd normally see in a very gendered uh, Korean society overall, um, um, the the fact that she is the uh, directly related to Kim, would, would make her the most likely choice. And, and we've also seen lately, um, there have been more statements associated with her. Um, statements both on um, inter-Korean relations and statements on, um, on U.S.-North uh, Korea relations. And those statements have impact. Um, and so one example of this was uh, Kim Yo-jong made some statements about how um, Um, She didn't like the balloon launches that were being done by human rights groups um, that filled these balloons with eyeballs and CDs and thumb drives and money and things and flew them into North Korea. She didn't like these. And so the South Korean government has gone an all all out campaign to defund these organizations, to make the balloon launchings illegal, um, um, all these sorts of things. And so that shows that what she says is taken to have impact. I mean, I don't think what the South Korean government is doing in that respect is a good thing—rolling back human rights organizations. But to the question of whether people listen to Kim Jo, Kim Yo Jong, you know, that's an example that they clearly do not just inside the country, but South Korea. And if there's any government that's attuned to what's going on in North Korea, it's going to be South Korea.
0: And and speaking speaking of South Korea, um, the. Former U.S. ambassador to South Korea, the late Stephen Bosworth, once said, um, he says, in the past, he says, " Uh, both the United States and South Korea were uh, interested in the same things in terms of dealing with North Korea. We were both in the car together, but the U.S. was driving. Now, this was a statement uh, he made back in the um, um, early 2000s. He says, but now it's different. He says, now we're still in the car, but now it's the South Koreans driving. Do you think that analogy holds true today?
1: Um, well, I certainly think it did during the Trump administration um, in the sense that um, uh, I think, you know, the Moon government was working very hard behind the scenes to try to bring the U.S. and North Korea together. Anytime there was a hiccup in the efforts at diplomacy, the South Koreans would come up with creative ways to try to bring the two sides together. You know, whether it was inviting Kim Yo-jong and Kim Jong y- nam to the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics and inviting... Vice President Pence and his wife to come. Uh, Abe was there. The Prime Minister of Japan was there as well. Whether it was things like that or whether it was um, the South Korean National Security Advisor having dinner with Kim Jong-un and then coming directly to Washington, D.C. to talk to to President Trump. So I think the South Koreans in that sense really did play a, a role to try to facilitate diplomacy. And who could blame them from doing that? I mean, you know, they were as worried as many were that we were headed towards a war in 2017. So they wanted to get as far away from that as they could. <clears throat> Going forward, um, um, it's it's not really clear yet. I mean, it'll a lot will depend on what the Biden administration wants to do. Um, as hard as South Korea works, and they work very hard to try to facilitate diplomacy and to try to create opportunities for inter-Korean reconciliation and, and and things of that nature, as hard as they try to do that, you know, everybody knows North Korea wants to talk to one country, right? And that's the United States. And so in that sense, I think South Korea can play an important part in helping to set things up. But in the end, the United States has to drive the car, um, whether it's on things like um, a, a freeze, an end of war declaration, you know, a, 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 ver- a verifiable nuclear declaration, um, or, or, or disablement, dismantlement, all of these sorts of steps, I mean, the United States um, has to be driving the car.
0: So in, in that regard, do you think a, a peace treaty to replace the existing armistice would be a step in the right direction? Or is that something that we would hold on to as a reward of sorts if North Korea demonstrates that they have some interest in, in denuclearization?
1: Uh, it's a good question, and it's a hard one to answer. I mean, I think a peace treaty might be a step too far, frankly. Um, <coughs> and, and, you know, I, some may think this is semantics, but you know, I don't necessarily think it's semantics. I mean, a treaty, first of all, would have to be ratified by um, uh, the Senate, or at least on our side, and probably the other legislatures. It would have to involve most likely the four parties, South Korea, China, the U.S., and, and North Korea. The, Signatories to the arm, the armistice, although South Korea never signed the armistice, um, but but most importantly, I think it it would be difficult to do because of the ratification part, and because a treaty would, in a sense, it could it could convey a codification of the status quo in the sense that North Korea would remain a nuclear weapon state, rather than a political declaration saying that all sides acknowledge that. Um, we don't want war on the peninsula. We want to end the state of war on the Korean peninsula. Um, would be um, um, It would be a um, more of a political step than it would be a treaty. It could be a step towards a treaty. But it would be a, a real statement of intentions. And one of North Korea's big hang-ups on the United States has always been, you know, and North Korean negotiators have said this to me a million times, right? You don't end your hostile policy, right? You know when will they give up their nuclear weapons? When you end your hostile policy, you, the United States, end your hostile policy. So, you know, that could be one way of saying that the United States is not seeking a war on the Korean Peninsula. And we're not, right? We, we, we know we're not. We're not seeking a war on the Korean Peninsula, but it would it be a way to move from what is currently um, a state of hostilities to an end to that state of hostilities, but not ready for a, a peace treaty. A peace treaty might come, as your question suggests. At the end of the process, when we've gotten much farther down the road of denuclearization, there are clear intentions to denuclearize. Um, at that point, we might consider we might consider an actual treaty.
0: And it could also give impetus to the North Koreans' demands to remove U.S. troops if there were a, a peace treaty. Why do you need these people here? Uh, and the other part, and, and tell me if you think this is just rhetoric on the part of, of the North Koreans they've always said that their their uh, intention is to reunify the peninsula but under their their uh, their regime uh and the first step is obviously removal of us um us troops uh and then some sort of socialization if not communization, of the south is that rhetoric or do you think that they are they are honestly and truly intent on reunifying the country under their terms
1: um so i don't you know uh, uh... So I don't know. Right. We don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think that you we have to accept that that language still exists, um, that they still say things like that. And I'm sure there are elements of the North Korean leadership and society that really still believe that is that is possible. I do agree with you that um, um, one of the things that they are looking for uh, clearly is a weakening of the U.S.-Korean alliance. Um, that might be manifest in things like the ground troops being pulled out um, and weakening South Korean confidence in the U.S. security guarantee. You know, I think the, those are clearly part of, of the strategy. Um, but I've always believed we've got to take the North Koreans at their word. <laughs> and if they say that that is certainly part of their strategy, um, 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 uh, we can't deny that it's not. Um, and the real question is how do you, how do you shape you know, nation states from um, their, their long stated intentions to something different, you know, through a process of diplomacy engagement as well as compellence, right? A coercive diplomacy as well.
0: Okay, um, we're coming up on our time limits, but the, uh, one final question. It is late January, uh, President. Elect Biden has been inaugurated as president. President Trump has actually left the White House, and uh, and Kim Jong Un launches his new ICBM that was recently on uh, on display um, across the sea of Japan. What does the president do?
1: So that would be a bad situation, frankly. Um, I think it would it would compel um, the United States to uh, you know move in. Um, into a much more coercive track. I mean, if they were to launch this ICBM um, to demonstrate a range and ability to hit the United States, um, um, you know, falling short of hitting the United States, but for that purpose, um, I mean, I think that would require um, the United States really to go to a much more coercive position. Now, you know, what does that mean? It's not really clear. A lot of it depends on what um, the UN Security Council wants to do. It depends on what China is willing to do it depends on what the South Koreans are willing to accept. Um, but it would clearly be a track of you know much more pressure and sanctions and containment. Um, <clears throat> you know, um, um, I think North Korea's demonstration of those capabilities would be a game changer in the sense that it would they would be trying to communicate that they na- now have a survivable force. And, um, and so that would certainly mean much more um, uh, from the United States, South Korea, and Japan in terms of missile defense um, uh, and extended deterrence um, and possibly even new offensive strike capabilities in and around the region. Um, but, you know, that's a track I think that clearly many people don't want to go down. It would be stupid for the North Koreans to do that um, um, when they have an opportunity to try to, try to find a better path. Um, with uh, with a new administration that um, um, that is open to negotiation uh, and that is less unpredictable than what they've dealt with over the last four years.
0: Hopefully, that won't occur. So, right. I want I want to really thank you, uh, Victor. This has been not just illuminating but fascinating. Um, the problem of North Korea is never going to go away certainly not in the, the next administration. Uh, and I think that the uh, having people such as you with the, your experience and, and, and knowledge on the issue, uh, that's certainly gonna help. So again, thank you from, uh, from all of us here at AFIO. And Jim, uh, we turn the uh, podium to you. It's been fascinating to be the third person in the virtual room, listening to this fascinating conversation between two real East Asia experts. I'd like to thank Dr. Richard Cha, CSIS, and John Sano. Gentlemen, it's been a real treat. Thank you very much. You very much.
1: Well, thank you, Jim, and thank you, John, very much for the opportunity. And to all the listeners and to John and Jim, thank you for your service to the country.
0: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen.